0: This is session number eight on Ephesians 4, 11 to 14, and in it we're going to focus on the meaning of the term Son of God. It's a term that we use very often and yet don't often pause to ponder the meaning. And the reason it needs to be pondered in these days is because a third of the world's population, namely Muslims, they take great offense at calling any person the Son of God because they have this erroneous conception that when we use the term Son of God, we mean something like the God, like Allah, had sex with a person like Mary and brought forth a son like Jesus, or some other misconception. And the word son is puzzling, isn't it? How does God have a son? So, Father, as we ponder this glorious term, grant us to see its true glory. Forbid that we would distort it in any way, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be shepherds and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and unity of the knowledge of the son of god so he wants us to be unified in our understanding of who jesus is as the son of god and unified in our embrace of him in our treasuring of him so how shall we go about discerning the new testament meaning in the wider usage and in paul's usage of the son of god let's go back and trace the word or the phrase from its beginning in the New Testament. So here we are at the baptism of Jesus. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, my loved Son, singular, with whom I am well pleased. So at the very outset of Jesus' ministry, a voice from heaven declared, He's a Son and he is beloved. And then when Jesus himself, to express his own self-understanding, spoke, he said this to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, that is the Messiah, the long-promised one, this mysterious figure that would be a man and yet more than a man, the Christ the Son of the living God, the Son, not a Son, of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father. So this is true. What you have just spoken is true. I am the Son of the living God. Now, when John the Apostle writes his gospel, he makes very clear in the milieu of his day, that the term Son of God does not mean a mere philosophical concept. It certainly does not mean a human product of a human uh, divine marriage. Here's the way he does it. In the beginning was the Word. Like the creative Word of God. Jesus identified as the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. There's the mystery of this Word. He is distinct, in some sense, from the Father, and yet he is the Father. He's God. God with the Father. He was in the beginning with God. Now verse 14, And the Word, the divine Word who was God, became flesh and dwelt among us, which is why God could say, this is my beloved Son, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son. So now the Word and the Son are the same person. So here's the introduction of the Sonship category. It's aligned with the Word category to make crystal clear this Son did not come into being. He did not come into being. He was there in the very beginning because he was God. Don't ever think that Jesus, the Christ, is identified as a son because he had an origin, a time where he came into being before which he was not. Don't ever think that way. That's not the way the New Testament thinks about the Son of God, full of grace and truth, No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side. He's God, but he's at the Father's side. This is a a very intimate statement of, uh, in the bosom of the Father, nestled into the chest of the Father. It's a graphic image of very close relationship of some kind from eternity has made him known. Now, Paul picks up the language of the baptism of Jesus in Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. That's the phrase the Father used. This is my beloved Son. And now Paul is preaching Christ as this beloved Son. And when we are saved, we are put in his kingdom. Now, how does Paul conceive of the Son? Here's one way. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. So picture the Father having an image of himself. And that image is so clear and distinct and full that it has, from all eternity, stood forth as a distinct person identified as a son. So his image is his son. Here's another way Paul describes it. This is probably the fullest of all his descriptions. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form, Christ Jesus was in the form of God, did not count that equality with god so this form this image is to be understood in terms of godness equality with god a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men so when he became a man paul says in colossians 2:9 in him in christ The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, we have a God-man, an incarnate God, which means he is now sent into the world. He is pre-existent. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own son. And that own right there signifies, doesn't it? Affection and personal bond between them. There's only one, his own son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So the son took on flesh precisely to save us. Sin was condemned. Our sin was punished in the bodily form of the Son of God. One more passage to draw out this affectionate reality. Romans 8.32, perhaps my favorite verse in all the Bible because of the depth of it and the extent of its implications for my joy forever. He who did not spare his Own son. Now ponder that for just a moment. Not spare implies it would have been very easy to spare. He would have preferred, in one sense, to spare because not sparing a son by a father is a difficult thing. And it is meant to be seen as difficult because of the logic that unfolds here. God didn't spare his own son. And this own here, just like in 8.3, is intended to uh, imply infinite affection. If any of you has a son, and you look down on your son, and you love your son, multiply that by a billion, and you might feel the pathos of he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if we we understand the relationship to the Father and the Son rightly, and then realize that he overcame his disinclination to spare his Son, and if he did that hardest of all things, how much more? How will he not with him, Give us all things, everything we need to do His will, everything we need to enjoy Him fully and eternally, He will do because He didn't spare His own Son. So I conclude that one of the reasons that God ordained that in human language, Jesus Christ would be identified as Son is to get at the profound affectional dimension of the relationship between God and the second person of God, God the Father and God the Son. This, he deemed, is as good as we can do in human language to get at the dignity of the second person of the Trinity and to get at the affection that bound them And to get at the implications for our salvation of what it meant that such an affectionately loved one should not be spared but given up for us all. And this letter is saying Paul longs for there to be in the church a ministry of shepherding and teaching that brings the saints to do a ministry that builds the body until there's a unity of affection for and understanding of the Son of God.